0: Uh, experts tell us that uh, the one thing that we all want most and the one thing that we all need most, whether we know it or not or believe it or not, is to love and be loved. That's our greatest desire. Uh, that's our greatest need and in a world full of people that want and desire to love and be loved uh, it shouldn't surprise us that we live in a world that's also full of songs all about love and in a world full of songs about love in my estimation it, at least you know in this contemporary era uh, of music that we're in in the last few years at the top of of the heap or near the top of the heap of songs about love uh, one of the best I really think has to be the song that we just heard perfect by Ed Sharon and and uh, if you if you've heard this song before, and it's just such a such a catchy little song, and it draws you in. But but he wrote this song about his high school girlfriend. Now, if you're a guy and you're here today, you know everybody you know most likely has that high school girlfriend, and uh, she's probably not with you today. Though you may have married her, and you may have her here today. Uh, but he 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 wrote this song about his high school girlfriend. Her name was Cherry, and uh, they lost touch after high. school school, uh, she moved to New York for a job, uh, they reconnected, uh, sounds like a movie, and, and today they're married, but, but when he actually wrote this song, uh, they weren't married yet, and, and he wrote it, he, he wrote the lyrics about a night they shared together in Spain. Now, every great love story should begin with a night that you spent with somebody in Spain. Uh, if you're at a dinner party and, and somebody says, tell me your all story, well, it, was, it started, you remember that night we, we shared in Spain and everybody at the table is gonna defer to you. Everybody's just gonna shut up and say, well, tell us about that, it sounds amazing. And so he wrote about it and, and that's the lyrics we just got through hearing about one particular night they shared together in Spain. It's a song about finding love uh, with somebody you didn't anticipate you know, finding love with. Uh, it's a story that's anchored to a moment in time, you know, one of those forever memories uh, that's going to live on forever, you know, we're dancing, you know, in the night, barefoot on the grass, you know, a girl who thinks she looks like she's a mess, uh, but when he looks at her, he thinks to himself, no, you look perfect tonight. And then a little bit later on in the song, we find out that it's a love song about finding love with someone who shares your dreams, your hopes, your vision, and your values for life because to marry somebody and to hit your wagon to somebody who doesn't share, you know, your vision and values, your hopes and dreams, well, that's going to be difficult and that's going to be challenging. Uh, so it's a song about finding someone who's like-minded and, and you share common vision for the future and common values for life. It's a song about a love that's worth five, for, worth staying around for, worth waiting for, worth working for. And just like every great love story, it's it's a story with the past, it's a story with the present, and then it's a story with you know a very bright future. And again, we love songs about love because we're, we're hardwired that way because our greatest desire and our greatest need is to love and be loved. And it doesn't matter at all who you are, it's just the way it is. And perhaps this, this, this universal need for love is why all of these great love stories have survived history and literature. You know, Like Romeo and Juliet, uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, you know, Sir Lancelot and Guinevere. And then, you know, even even in recent years and and, and present days, you know, there are stories out there, you know, of people that we're drawn to. And it's just not because of their personality or their status or any of those things. It's because we're kind of drawn to those stories about love because it's just part of the the fabric of, of who we are. And so, you know, in recent years, there's been Johnny and June, and some of you are like, who? You know, Johnny Johnny Cash and you know June Carter Cash. Great great love story, ups and downs. You know all the turns and twists. You know George and Barbara Bush. Uh, if you've ever read any of his letters to Barbara from the time that you know they were in high school and and then when he was in the service and even later on in life, uh, very moving letters. And 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 it just kind of draws you in. Or you know uh, Tom and Giselle. I mean, come on. I, I mean that's like the goat couple. I mean, when you look that good and you're that good, you have to look at each other and just love each other. I mean, you just wake up every day and think, gosh, you know, how can we not be happy? But, you know, there's Tom and Giselle and then there's Will and Kate and there's, you know, Ryan and Blake and it just goes on and on and on. And and we're just not drawn to it because of, you know, who these people are and what they do. But there's something more than that. We're kind of drawn in into love. And it doesn't even matter how independent or how macho you are, you know, because you may be macho man and here you are at church and you're so Macho, you know, you're gonna spend the rest of your time of this service trying to convince me you are the most miserable man on the planet. You can't smile, you can't, I mean, it's just I'm macho, I'm tough, I'm, I'm so independent, I don't need that stuff, I'm, I don't care about any of that stuff, but actually you're kind of drawn to it and you don't even know it uh, because of your need for it. Uh, even in even some of the greatest action movies or some of the most, you know, I, I would call them, you know, just great man movies, you know, I mean, there's there's a love story attached to it. Rocky Rocky's just not about boxing, it's about Rocky and Adrian. I I mean, it's like, yes it's like a love story and you're like no it's not yes it is it's like you know boxing's just part of it but there's this greater story you know in there or the greatest movie of all time godfather you know you got michael and kate and he gets pulled in and just when he thought he was out he gets pulled back in and 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 he loves his family he's got to protect it and but yet kate doesn't want him to be in and i mean it's just it's just really it's just a great thing and we're kind of drawn into it or you know gladiator maximus and and his wife that he can't wait to be reunited with after after this life or is over and then, you know, here in recent days, what may be the best movie I've seen in, in all my life. You know, you got uh, Maverick and the Admiral Daughter named Penny, and, and and if you've not seen The New Chop Gun, uh, wow, I, I love that, and so it's just there's always this little story that's put in there, and so today, I want to talk about one of the most known and overlooked love stories in the Bible, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of stories we could talk about out of the Bible that are love stories. We could talk about Abraham and Sarah, and we could talk about how to keep the fire burning into your 70s, you know, how to, how to keep the tent nice and fun into the later years of your life, you know, because here she is, you know, getting pregnant in her 70s, and she cracking up and I mean, you know, they got this this thing going on and it's just a great little love story between Abraham and Sarah, lots of ups and downs and turns and, and things you don't expect and they survive it and you could talk about them, you could talk about, you know, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, that's another great story, you could talk about uh, Jacob and Rachel You know, Jacob saw Rachel, fell in love with her, she's so beautiful and then he worked, you know, for seven years to get her and then his father-in-law, you know, kind of conned him and, and gave him the other sister, Leah the ugly one. And, and, and it just says that she had weak eyes and she's just kind of, you know, just kind of frail. And, and, and then he loved Rachel so much, he worked another seven years and got Rachel. So now he has two wives and you know, it's gonna be an interesting story whenever there's two wives and a guy and, and you're trying to tell that love story and how all that works out. And, and we could talk about that or we could talk about Adam and Eve, maybe the only you know perfect couple that's ever been. Uh, neither one of them brought history into the relationship. Uh, neither one of them had exes to have to deal with. Uh, neither one of them brought any bad habits in, in, into, the, into the relationship, but you know that, that all lasted for about a minute and then it all just went to, went to pot. But today I wanna talk about a couple that you've heard of, but maybe you, you just don't know how great their story is because it is a love story, but it's more than a love story. It's the story of Ruth and Boaz. The story of Ruth and Boaz is a short story that has a big message. There's about 85 verses in the book of Ruth and you can read about it, uh, read through it in about 15 or 20 minutes. It's only one of two books uh, in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, that's named after a woman. Uh, the other would be Esther, but it's the only book of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, that is named after someone who is not Jewish. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But the story of Ruth and Boaz is a story of hardship. It's a story of tragedy of setback and misfortune. And and it's a story about finding love in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of setbacks and hardship and misfortune. And it's a story about how love gives birth to hope because that's how love always works. Whenever you find someone to love and someone to love you, uh, that love always opens the door for hope. It, It colors the way that you see the world around you. It colors the way that you see the past. It colors the way you see the future. It colors the way you see the present. So I'm just gonna jump in on this story because there's a lot to it and I need to tell it in, in a short period of time. Uh, but it's a story of love that opens up the door to hope. And, and this is how the story begins. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, now the narrator the storyteller wants to anchor this story to a period of history because this is not fairy tale this is a historical account of real people just like you and me real events that happened in their life just like we have real events that happen in our lives and the narrator the storyteller the author of this book anchors what he's about to tell us to a very specific period in Israel's history. It's known as the period of the judges. There's actually an entire book in the Old Testament that covers that 330 year period of time that started with the death of Joshua and it ended with the coronation of King Saul, the first king over Israel. When Joshua died, it says that all the other elders of that generation also began to die. And when all of those leaders in that generation had passed away. It says in the book of Judges at the very beginning that a new generation rose up which did not know the Lord. An entire generation walked away from faith. An entire generation abandoned the faith of their fathers, abandoned the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was a devastating thing because there was a generation of moms and dads Moms and dads just like you and me. There was a generation of moms and dads that failed to pass faith on to the next generation. There was a generation of families that refused to take seriously, passing faith on to the next generation. They may have succeeded at other things. They may have succeeded at many things, but they failed at one of the most important things, and that was passing faith on to the next generation. And as I said, the consequences of that was devastating because in the end of the book of Judges, there's a description of that whole 330 years of history. And, And this is what the writer of Judges says, that in those days... Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It it was a time when everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody lived by their own definitions for what was right and what was wrong. You had your definitions for what was right and what was wrong, I've got my definitions for what's right and what's wrong, and hopefully our lives will not intersect in a way where our interests are in conflict with one another. Otherwise, you just do what you wanna do, I'll do what I wanna do, let everybody do what they wanna do. Everybody felt the freedom, everybody felt the autonomy, to do what they wanted to do with whoever they wanted to do it with as much as they wanted to do it because it was a time where there was no absolute standard for right and wrong. And whenever you have no absolute standard for right and wrong and no sense of divine accountability, where one day we will give an account to God, we will have to reckon with God, that there will be you know, a, a giving of the accounts, so to speak, that whenever there's a culture that loses any type of idea or perception about a divine accountability you know, to God, then when you couple that with no absolute you know, definition of right and wrong. Then what happens? You know, in the book of Judges, happens throughout history in any culture that abandons an absolute uh, definition of right and wrong, an absolute you know standard of right and wrong, and uh, a culture that abandons you know any sense of divine accountability. The thing that always happens is chaos and anarchy. And, and what was true in Judges for three hundred and thirty years, you can find it all throughout history. And, and today, even on our planet, wherever you find chaos and whenever you find you know anarchy, you always find that it manifests itself the same way. It manifests itself with senseless violence. And whenever you and I begin to see senseless violence, I mean violence that you just can't ex- explain. Evil that you just you just can't make sense of. I mean it just goes beyond, you know, the pale of like normal things. You know, it's just so evil. It's just so dark. It's just it's just so evil. You just can't hardly even explain it. Whenever you begin to see that, just always remind yourself where that comes from it always comes from a person, it always comes from a culture, it always comes from a subset of a person or a group of people who believe that there's no absolute standard of right and wrong and that there's no such thing as divine accountability, that there's no such thing as one day giving account to God. And when a person or a culture or a subset of culture loses those guiding principles, then absolutely anything becomes possible. Senseless violence, unrestrained injustice, that's what was going on in the time of the judges. It was a dark time, very little light, very, very little. Hardly any good news. I mean, all news was bad news, no good news. Uh, and it seemed as though naturally that nothing good was going on during that particular time because it was a time when Israel walked away from their faith. Uh, they decided that the stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, were myth, that you couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't really live your lives by that type of truth. You couldn't live your life by, by those stories and by that faith any longer. And they just started doing their own thing and they made it up as they went along. And then in the midst of it all, as unlikely as it would have seemed if we were there and as unnoticed as it would have been had we been there, God is doing something in the dark that's actually going to eventually light up the world. God's doing something in the dark that's eventually gonna light up the world. And God is doing something during those 330 years and a little segment in particular of those 330 years while the world is busy doing whatever they wanna do making up their own definitions of right and wrong. God is doing something that's gonna change everything. And so, this is the context for when the writer says, I'm gonna tell you a story, and it's when everybody has cast off restraint. Everybody's living the way they want to. It's dangerous, it's dark, it's amoral, it's a bad time to live, and he says, When the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So just when you thought that nothing could get any worse, it gets worse. A famine breaks out. And so people are hungry and people are starving and everything that goes along with famine, all the sights and the sounds, it's all there. And and it's horrible. And and you put that in the midst of the chaos and the anarchy and all the senseless violence and the injustice. I mean, things just go from bad to worse. And it says, so this famine breaks out. And so a man... So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wives and his two sons with him. And so the people who heard this story, you know, in in the first generation of this story or read this story, there's some some key words that would have created some, you know, emotional, you know, feelings in, in the audience because they know some things perhaps that we don't. And they were mindful of some things that perhaps we're not even thinking about. So, so here's a family in Bethlehem who's living at this, you know, this very dark period of history and then a famine breaks out and, and this father decides that he and his wife are gonna move their two sons to Moab. It says the man's name was Elimelech and, and his name meant that God is king. And his wife, her name was Naomi and her name meant pleasant. And their two sons were Malon and Killian which their names meant sick and dying. Uh, I I don't know. Uh, it, It just, it is what it is. That's the family. And it says, when they reached Moab, when they reached Moab, they settled there. Now there's a lot of debate whether Elimelech, whether this decision to leave Bethlehem, you know, Israel, to leave Bethlehem and Judea and to go to Moab, whether it was an act of faithlessness or not, you know, was he really living as though he believed that God was king and, and I don't know. I, I don't know if it was an act of faithlessness, but I, I know for certain that it was an act of desperation. I know for certain that it was probably an act of pragmatism. Uh, some may argue that it was faithlessness that drove him to leave Judea and go to Moab. Uh, some may say it was common sense, it was wisdom, because if you were watching your wife you know, go hungry and your children starve, you know, who wouldn't do whatever was necessary? You would move wherever because they heard that there was food in Moab. So who wouldn't move to Moab? And you're thinking, well, what's the big deal about Moab? Well, the Moabites were a people with a really dark history, with dark origins. We talked about it, you know, two or three weeks ago. They were descendants of Lot. And his daughter. His daughter got you know her dad you know drunk, and then they had sex, and then they had a son, and his name was Moab. So Moab was you know the product of incest, and then he founded this nation called Moab, you know, with the Moabites. And, and they're a lawless people. There are people who've rejected the God of Israel, the laws of Israel, the moral code of Israel. They're a cursed people. They worship this god by the name of Chemosh, and and, and they actually practice child sacrifice. So it, it's an entirely Different culture. It's a dark, evil, lawless culture, and, and so you know Moab is not you know where you went. It's not who you associated with because the fear was that if you were in proximity to Moab and Moabites, that they would influence you away from your faith, or they could influence you in, in a way that was unhealthy, uh, that's not good for you, that's not good for your family, that's that's not good for your future. And so here's Elimelech, who, who's looking at a famine but he hears that there's food in Moab. So he makes what's got to be at minimal a very difficult decision to take his Jewish family and move them to Moab so that they can survive. And so now he moves his family there and he's gonna raise his kids there. And so once they get there, it says, then Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. And and there's a little bit of irony here that's present from the very get-go. He went there to live, but he goes there and he actually dies. And there's a little note that we should make to ourselves about this because there's so much, so many great truths that are found in this little short 85 verse book. And the idea is that we can't control outcomes as much as we would like to think we can. We like to think we can control outcomes, but when it comes down to it, you and I can control very few outcomes in life. Elimelech moves his entire family to Moab to survive but we're not told what happens. We just know he gets there and he dies because we can't control outcomes. We can't control life. We can't control things that just happen. We, we can't control crazy things that sometimes spin out of control and there's consequences to it. We, we can't control as much as we think we can. And it's just a good reminder. It reminds us that we're not in control as much as we like to think we're in control that God ultimately is in control and that everything that happens, it either comes from God's hand or it comes through God's hand. And, and, and that can bother us a little bit at first, but in the end, it should bring us peace. It should bring us a sense of solace to know that God is in control. I feel better with God being in control than I do with you being in control. And I feel better about God being in control than I feel with me being in control. And so he goes there to live and he dies. And so Naomi's left with her two sons sick and dying. It says the two sons married Moabite women. And again, this was against, you know, Mosaic law because not that there was anything wrong with marrying another ethnicity. Uh, there's nothing wrong with marrying someone of a different, you know, race. Uh, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But but the idea was that when you marry someone from another culture or another religion, you're just not getting them, but you're getting their gods and you're getting their values, and you get it, you're getting their moral code and their vision. Vision for what life looks like. And so they went there. And this is interesting to think about. Elimelech moved his family there to survive. But in moving his family there to survive, he robbed his children of some choices because there are no Jewish women over there for his sons to marry. And parents, sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes that's that's what has to happen when your mom and your dad and you make decisions for your sons and daughters, sometimes you will rob them of decisions. And sometimes that can be a good thing and sometimes that can be a bad thing, but it's almost always a necessary thing and it's almost something that always happens because every single one of us, our parents made choices along the way that took choices away from us. That's just the nature of life. And so Elimelech moves when he moved there, he took some choices away. And so his two sons were left to marry Moabite women. It says one married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. So here we're introduced to these two Moabite women and of course one of them being the namesake of the book, Ruth. So a few years go by, matter of fact, the author says about 10 years go by after they all marry and about 10 years later, both Malon and Chilion died as if we didn't see that one coming. This left Naomi alone. Now, ladies, it's so hard. You live in the West. Uh, you live in the post-enlightenment world. You live in the 21st century. You live in the United States of America. And it's so hard, uh, perhaps, to draw you know, a shortened distance between your world and Naomi's world because she's left alone. And it's hard for us in our 21st century mindset to understand what a devastating and dangerous thing this was for Naomi. She is a Jewish woman, one, living in Moab. And this is a culture where it's hard to be a woman. Matter of fact, in every culture at this time in history, it's not easy to be a woman. Women were seen as property. Women were seen as second-class citizens. And Naomi, she's left in Moab in a place where she has no family, she has no husband or sons to protect her. She's left alone, she's vulnerable. In many ways, she's absolutely powerless and she's alone. So it's very difficult for us to understand what a terrible situation Naomi finds herself in without her sons and without her husband. This is a big deal. So after some time and you know the the sons die and Naomi's left in Moab, she survives long enough to hear that the famine has has kind of eased up in Bethlehem and she decides she's gonna go home. And so she looks at her two her two daughter-in-laws, who are now widows as well like her, and she says, I, I'm kinda sorry we got you into this, and, and I'm really sorry my sons died. And but I gotta go home now. I can't be a Jewish woman in Moab. It's not safe, it's, not, it's, it's just too dangerous. There's no hope for me here. There's no mechanism for me to even survive over here. I've gotta go home and be with my people. I've gotta go home and be with my, my family. You two girls, you're young enough, you need to just go back home. And you need to go back to your families and you need to go back to your gods and you need to find a couple of Moabite men and you just need to marry them because you are young enough to start over, but I'm going home. And, and Orpah decided that she would do just that. She turned around and she went home and she went back to her family, she went back to her gods and perhaps she found a Moabite man to marry. But Ruth, Ruth looked at Naomi and said, don't, don't ask me to do that. It says, Ruth replied, said, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. And then she gives us some of the most quoted lines of ancient literature. She goes, wherever you go, I will go wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, Naomi, and your God will be my God. I'm gonna leave and forsake my culture. I'm gonna leave and forsake the gods that I grew up with, and I'm gonna embrace your God, and I'm gonna go wherever you go. And Naomi, wherever you die, I will die, and I will be buried wherever you are buried. And Ruth is so many things. She's honorable, she's virtuous, and it's pointed out multiple times through this book. And the same language that it talks about Ruth throughout these 85 verses is the same language that's used to talk about the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. But one thing to note about Ruth that we need to pay attention to, Ruth is loyal. And the reason we should pay attention to that is because we live in a world where hardly anybody values loyalty anymore. Loyalty that says, Naomi, I'm sticking with you, even if it's hard, I'm sticking with you, even if it's costly, even if it's not convenient. I'm not gonna just stand with you, I'm gonna stand by you, I'm gonna stand up for you, even if it's not in my best interest. We should all pay attention to that because we don't see that very often. We should pay attention to that because this doesn't get celebrated very often in our culture. Loyalty that says, hey, everybody else may walk out on you. The bottom may fall out beneath your feet, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not turning my back on you. I'm gonna stand with you, I'm gonna stand up for you, and even if it costs me, even if it's not convenient for me, even if it makes my life difficult, I'm sticking by you. Because loyalty, that's what love does. Loyalty is what friendship is all about. Loyalty is something to be celebrated and honored. And not like in our culture where loyalty is almost being turned into something sinister or, or something that's negative. But here's Ruth. She's, she's so, she so loves Naomi. She's got such a loyalty to Naomi. She goes, I, I'm going with you. And, and Naomi says, okay, we're going back home. And so they begin to go back and and when they get on the outskirts of Bethlehem, you know, it's been a few years, but when people see Naomi and Ruth coming, they they recognize Naomi and, and they're excited. They're like, Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. And they go out and they greet her. But she's not the same woman anymore. Naomi is not the same woman coming back as she was when she left there years ago. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. She responded, Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Mara just means bitter. She said, I used to be pleasant, but don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. Life's made her bitter. Things have happened that she didn't ask for and things have happened that perhaps she didn't feel like she deserved. And I'm telling you, until that happens to you, you'll never know how you'll respond until something happens to you that you didn't ask for and that you feel like you didn't deserve. And it was like the rug got pulled out from under your feet until that knocks on your door or calls you up on the phone, until that happens, you'll never know how you respond and it's as you've heard it before. In that moment, you either decide that what has happened is either gonna make you better and if it doesn't make you better, it's surely gonna make you bitter. Naomi's had some things happen, life has happened. She's lost a husband. She's lost two sons. She's lost virtually everything she has to lose and she has gotten bitter. And let me tell you about bitter people. Bitter people are almost always angry. And they end up carrying a chip on their shoulder and they're always expecting somebody to cross them, you know, undermine them, do something bad against them. They refuse to let go of grudges. They're always consumed with unforgiveness even though they oftentimes don't realize it. They're mad at life, they're mad at God, they're mad at themselves, they're just mad at everybody. And as all of that hate begins to consume, all of that anger begins to consume them, it edges out love. And when you edge out love, you edge out life because we're all created to love and be loved and when you lose the capacity to love and when you lose the capacity or I lose the capacity to let people love me, it edges life out. She's not the same person she was when she left. The hard knocks have changed her. She's been sucker punched. She's had her teeth knocked out. She's been drugged around a little bit by life. It's not been easy. It's been hard. It's been difficult. It's been gut-riching. Her smile's gone, her laugh is gone, her joy is gone. She's no longer pleasant, she's bitter. She said, I went away full, but the Lord brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, she's mad at God. When the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. And it's okay, if you're mad at God, God can handle it. At least she was honest enough to say it. She goes, you know what, I just feel like God's against me. I feel like God's got his fist raised up and God's just been taking punches at me. She feels forsaken by God. She feels so far away from God's goodness. Now listen, don't, if, you don't, if you don't get anything else, don't miss this because this really is at the heart of the story. She feels so far away from God's goodness. She feels so far away from God's activity. The things she doesn't realize, the things she can't realize in this moment, is that she's at the very epicenter of God's activity. She's at the very center of what God is doing, not only in Bethlehem, but in history and also in the world. She had no idea what she was a part of, even in the moments where she felt like God had turned against her. So they come back to Bethlehem, and it's it's barley harvest, and so they've put out crops, and you know, landowners after they've put out their crops, it was time for harvest. And, and there was there was a national tradition uh, in Israel it was part of their custom part of their tradition part of their law that whenever you harvested your fields you always left the margins and the reason you left the margins it was for the orphans it was for the widows it was for the foreigners who were poor and destitute and needy and the reason that you didn't harvest your entire field was you left the harvest you left the margin for those people to harvest it was kind of the public welfare system it was a way to take care of people who, who had no way to take care of themselves so when they come back it's the beginning of barley harvest and everybody's out harvesting their fields except for the margins and so then the story continues says now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's husband Elimelech and one day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it and Naomi replied All right, my daughter, go ahead. And this was a risky thing to do because keep in mind, this is when everybody's doing right in their own eyes. You know, up is down and down is up and and right and wrong, it's up for grabs. So this is not safe for any woman. It's not safe for basically anybody at this time. And so Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, because the whole story of Ruth is about providence. It's about God getting you at the right place at the right time in front of the right person to accomplish his will and accomplish his purpose. It's about God being involved in the details of your life and my life and Ruth's life and Naomi's life, though it doesn't feel like God's involved at all. As it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. And that's gonna be a big deal later on and we'll talk about that in a moment. So Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. And so Boaz shows up, you know, to his operations center out there. He pulls up in his Escalade, he gets out, and you know, he's a wealthy guy. He's got, you know, lots of fields, and he's got lots of things to tend to. So he's out there, he's checking on his employees, kind of making sure everybody's getting started, checking on things, he's got his assistant there with him, and he's looking around, making sure everybody's got what they need. And you know, as he's looking out in the fields to see how everybody's working, you know, he he notices, he notices somebody. He he sees lots of women out there because they're, they're all kinds of people out there gleaning in those margins and, and that was a common thing but he sees somebody he doesn't he doesn't recognize and he sees somebody that kind of has caught his eye and it's it's Ruth. I mean she's not dolled up. Let's not let's not make her into something she's not at this moment. She's not dolled up. I mean, she's not got to fix her hair. Her hair's all up, you know. She probably has in a ponytail. You know, no makeup, covered in dirt and mud. She's out there working in the fields, and her clothes. I mean, she's she's in old ragtag clothing, you know, work clothes. And there she is, not too nice, you know, in, in this moment. You know, it's not her best moment. It's not the moment you know I think she would have chosen for Boaz to see her. I mean, she looks a mess, you know, in the way that she thinks, but. Even though she feels like she looks like a mess, Boaz looks out there and says, whew, I think she might look perfect to me. And he looks, he looks at his assistant and says, who is this? And he says, okay, that, that's Ruth, the Moabite. She was married to Naomi's uh, son and he tells him the whole story. And, and Ruth wouldn't leave Naomi and she came back from Moab and she's embraced you know, Naomi, Naomi's God and, and, and so he tells her the whole story. And so Boaz. Boaz goes out and you know, walks up to Ruth in the field and says, Hey, I'm Boaz. This is my field. Boaz's field. Did I mention I'm Boaz? You know, I don't know how the conversation went. But he goes out and says, Hey, I'm Boaz. You know, I hear you're Ruth. I've heard your story. It's amazing. I want you to know you can stay here. You can stay here and glean as long as, as, long as you want, as long as you, you need. And, and then he invited her to lunch and, he, and she went over there and ate this great lunch so much so she's gonna have leftovers and who, who heard of having leftovers at that time? Certainly not Ruth. And, and then after lunch, you know, Boaz says, you can go back and you can continue to glean and then he looks at his, his workers and remember, it's, every person's making up right and wrong in those days. Uh, but Boaz is different. He's a man of honor. He's a man of virtue. He looks at those guys, those workers, his hired hands, and he says, don't you dare touch her. Don't you molest her. Don't you attack her. Don't you, don't you lay a single finger on her or you'll have to deal with me. As a matter of fact, as you guys glean the field, I want you to leave behind handfuls on purpose for her. Just kind of make it look you know, inconspicuous, accidental, like you're harvesting and like, oh, I dropped that one, but we're gonna keep on going. And so at the end of the day, Ruth goes back to Naomi and she's got a jackpot load of barley. And she goes back and they're either gonna cook it or sell the rest to use the money to survive on. And and then, you know, she comes in with all that. And Naomi says, oh my goodness, where have you been? And, And then, you know, Ruth pulls out leftovers from lunch. And Naomi is like, leftovers from lunch? Where in the world did you go? Who has extended such kindness and grace to you? And Ruth says, Boaz. And Naomi said, well, may the Lord bless him. He is showing his kindness to us, as well as your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now again, part of their tradition and custom and law, there was such a thing called a kinsman redeemer. And in families, there were these redeemers who could step in and step up when everything had fallen apart. When a husband had died, when sons had died, they could, they could step in and protect an impoverished family. They would step in and repurchase lost property that was lost because payments couldn't be made or taxes couldn't be paid. And they would redeem that piece of property so that it would stay in that particular family line as an inheritance for generations to come. They would redeem relatives sold as slaves because they couldn't pay their, their debts. And then on occasion, they would provide an heir. In a case of a husband and a wife, they marry and then the husband dies, but there's no heir to, to, to take on the inheritance. The kinsman redeemer would, would give an heir to the, to the wife, to the widow so that the family property could be passed on to the next generation and so on and so forth. And so for that summer, Ruth continued to glean in Boaz's field. And she would see him on occasion, you know, uh, checking on things. And, and he would always see her when he was there checking on things. And all the workers were noticing that he's, off, he's here an awful lot checking on things. Boaz has never been here that much, don't have any clue what's going on. Anybody know why Boaz is here like every day now? You know, he's always out here. It's like we don't like the boss being here every day. And, you know, so there he is, you know, watching over, you know, Ruth from afar. And Naomi's getting older, and, and she knows that after this season of harvest is over, it's gonna be difficult again. It's gonna gonna be hard again to survive. But she has a plan and she tells Ruth, Ruth, it's time for you to get a husband. It is? It is. And I know the man. You do? I do. Who's the man? Boaz. (laughs) Oh yeah. Boaz has a thing for you, Ruth. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. I, trust me, I'm old and bitter, I know. <laughs> I know things. I was not always this way. I remember what it's like when a man treats you that way, when he sees you and he's got that sparkle in his eye. I'm telling you, he's got a soft spot for you in his heart. And so Naomi begins to you know, have this conversation and, and, and it goes like this. Says, One day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time. I, I, I think it's time to find a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for because Sooner or later, I'm gonna die and you're gonna be a Moabite woman over here in a Jewish land and it's, it's not gonna be safe for you. Boaz is a close relative of ours and he's been very kind to you to let you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor and then here, here Naomi begins to give, you know, Ruth, you know, how to catch a man advice. So, so here's this, this old Naomi, pleasant, who's turned bitter. She goes, now listen, I want you to do as I tell you, because here's, here's how you catch a man. Number one, start with, take a bath. Take a bath. Ruth, I love you, sweetheart, but you stink. So take a bath. You know, put on some of that Moabite madness perfume. You know, just, it'll drive him crazy. And dress in your nicest clothes. You know, that one that fits, you know, it's, it, it's very nice, very flattering. Then, listen to this, then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see until he has finished eating and drinking. Let him finish dinner and let him get a couple in him. <laughs> so you should read the Bible. So take a bath, get, get, get cleaned up, put on your dress, wait for him you know, to have dinner, celebrate a day of work, wait for him to have a couple drinks and then he'll settle down because he's gonna, he's gonna work hard all day and all evening and he'll be down there at the threshing floor and he'll sleep out there tonight. And, and so then when he falls asleep, that's when you go down to see him. See, is, is whew, I don't know, it sounds a little, is Ruth crossing a line? I, I don't know, I don't think so because it tells us in the very text that, that this is this is not that, that she's virtuous, she's honorable, but I'll tell you, she's not crossing a line, she is dancing like a fool on it. I, I mean, it just feels like, oh my goodness. And, and so she gets down there and she sees Boaz asleep and, and, and it's a cultural thing and there's a lot going on here. But then, you know, she she sits on the edge of where he's sleeping and she, raises the blanket and uncovers his feet. Which if you're like me and you hate feet, I don't know how I even feel about it. I, but anyway, you know, so she uncovers his feet and, and 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 you know you shouldn't you know read into this and we shouldn't read into this because we're told in the text she's honorable and virtuous, he's honorable and virtuous, and, and so we shouldn't read anything into it. But in the most appropriate way in that culture, Ruth asks Boaz to marry her it's risky <laughs> it's bold and so she she raises up the blanket and you know it, it kind of wakes him up and he looks down there and he's only seen working Ruth. he's never seen evening time roof <laughs> and he wakes up and he says who are you I'm Ruth. No, no, you're not. I've seen Ruth. And uh, I love Ruth, but you're not Ruth. Oh, I am. And he was like, oh my gosh, I didn't think you could be more beautiful. But, And so he says, don't worry about a thing. I'm gonna take care of everything. He says, but you need to know there's somebody closer in line to redeem you than me. There, there, there's, there's a hierarchy to this. And there's somebody else in line. And I wanna play this by the book because I'm an honorable man as well. And I, I, don't want, I, I wanna play this by the book so let me talk to him. And so Boaz was, was Ruth's best hope and maybe it was her only hope. And so the next day he goes into town and while the town elders are there so, so that there will be some folks there to witness. And, and, and Boaz goes up to, to his other relative who's closer in line to redeem Ruth. And he says, hey, you know, Elimelech. And he's like, yeah, I hate that, what happened to him? And he says, when well, Naomi's back, I don't know if you know that, but there's this huge piece of property in Limbo and, and it's upon you to choose whether or not to redeem it. And, and it was the kinsman redeemer's choice. And it, it was gonna be costly to redeem a piece of land, to bring it back into the family, to save it for that next generation. That was a costly thing. It, it was it was a sacrificial thing to do. And so he says, hey, you know, she's got this big, big piece of property that you're gonna have to redeem so that she can live. And, and he was like, yeah, I, okay, that sounds pretty good to me. And then, then Boaz dropped the other part on him. And then, says, Boaz told him, of course, Your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who would carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And then the guy thought about it and said, then I can't redeem it because this might endanger my own estate. I don't know how this is going to affect my children. And what if her Moabite family's crazy? And what if she has a crazy aunt that wants to come over? Because once you married her, you married her family and you get all the crazy that comes with her. And some of us have more crazy to offer our spouse than others. And so, you know, here, here he is. And he says, you redeem the land, I can't. It's too risky, it's too costly. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not willing to pay that price. But you know who was? Boaz because that's what love is always willing to do. It says, so Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son and they named him Obed. They took Obed and gave her to Naomi and Naomi held little Obed and pulled him close to her chest. And she goes, I thought God had forsaken me. I thought God had forgotten me, but I realize now that God had a plan all along. Just when I thought God was absent, God was moving and working in the dark shadows, orchestrating all of this for my good and for Ruth's good and what she didn't know at that moment for the good of the world. And that's basically the end of the story. And it's like, why is this story in the Bible? Why put a love story? During this time of the judges, of chaos and anarchy because of what? happens next. They named him Obed and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And this was the author's way of saying a brand new era was about to begin because Ruth and Boaz would become the great grandparents of Israel's greatest king, a king that God would promise that one day a savior would come from, a savior a redeemer who would one day redeem the world from sin, sorrow, and death. And Boaz's love for Ruth and his decision to redeem her was at the heart of God's plan to send a savior to redeem the world. There's a few things to take away from this and and, and I'm done. Just, Just to make a note of. This story reminds us that today's faithfulness will matter tomorrow. Everyday faithfulness can have generational consequences. Everyday faithfulness can have generational consequences. Everyday faithfulness can have generational consequences. This story reminds us that everyday people and everyday events are the canvas on which God is writing his story. Everyday people and everyday events, tragedy, hardship, misfortune, a family moving, death in the family, a decision to show up at a particular place at a particular time and you get seen by a particular person that begins to open doors, that begins to be a domino that leads to another, that leads to another, that leads to another, that catapults you right into the heart of God's will, that sweeps you up in God's plan for not only your life, but God's plan for the world, that God is in, in the midst of all of the mundane details of your life, when I'm not even thinking about it and you're not even thinking about it, that we're all being a part of God's plan every single day. And then the last thing and maybe the most important thing, you will never, well, true love requires sacrifice. True love, that's what the story reminds us of. True love requires a sacrifice. Boaz sacrificed to redeem Ruth. It was a sacrifice. That's what love does. Love is what pursues the highest good for the person that is loved. If someone isn't willing to sacrifice for your best good, that's not what true love is. This story points us to the truest of loves, the greatest of loves. God's love, God's love for you, God's love for me, God's love for the world, because you and I will never know how much someone cares about us until we see how much they're willing to sacrifice for us. And when we see someone sacrifice greatly for our benefit, we can rest assured they love us deeply. And for God to redeem the world, for God to redeem you, for God to redeem me, It cost him everything. It cost him his son. How much was God willing to sacrifice to redeem us? He was willing to sacrifice everything. His son, our savior, our king. And if you ever wanna know how God feels about you or how much God loves you, just remind yourself how much God was willing to sacrifice for you on the cross. That's the story of Ruth. A little love story down in Bethlehem, a little bit of light in a dark time that brought a baby into the world who would have a baby, who would have a baby, who would have a king, who would have a baby, so on and so forth until Matthew says in Matthew chapter one, and Mary gave birth to Jesus savior of the world, a descendant of Ruth and Boaz. Heavenly Father, thank you that in dark times, you're doing things that will one day light up the world. When it seems like you're so far away, when it seems like you're so absent, when misfortune and tragedy and life has turned on us, God, we may not even know it, but we're right in the middle of you doing something and greater than we can even wrap our minds around. So Father, let us receive it today in Jesus' name. And everybody said...